0: hi this is holly and this is kira and you're listening to the manic Pixie dream girls podcast What are we talking about today? Today we're talking
1: about the origin of the manic pixie gym girl trope. So this term came about in 2007 by a uh, film critic Nathan Rabin. Um, he works for the AV Club, which is still around. In 2007, he wrote an article called "The Baton Death March of Whimsy: Case File One" uh, after <laughs> watching this movie, *Elizabeth Town*. <laughs> Which I think is a bit of an extremist title for something so trivial, but whatever. So a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, according to Robin, is essentially a girl who exists solely for the character development of her male romantic interests. Kind of a quirky woman who f- comes in and fixes the life of this depressed and brooding man. The funny thing is, Robin actually kind of made the whole trope of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl worse. He uh helped give it a name and some agency to this really sexist and dehumanizing trope that is seen in a good chunk of films. So basically, in different media, the whole premise of Manning Pixie Dream Girl is she flies in and she saves this nihilistic man from himself. Then she disappears like a fantasy when this man is fixed. And I use air quotes there. So... Nathan Rabin has actually come out to say that he regrets creating the term because he thinks it gave power and agency to this male fantasy he was trying to call out. This term is really misused nowadays because real human women are called Manic Pixie Dream Girls, which is incredibly disrespectful because it just negates any personhood they have and ignores any goals and purposes that a woman has and reduces her to just a concept.
0: Would you classify yourself as a Manic Pixie Dream Girl?
1: Yes and no, but yeah, I would call myself a manic pixie dream girl in kind of like a reclamation way. Like, I think I've reclaimed the term and kind of like grown to love
0: it and accept it. Would you call yourself one? You know, I don't know if I am so much of like the pixie type. I, I am more like the the nihilistic man that the manic pixie dream girl <laughs> has to attend to. I'm like the downer but I think I I would like categorize you as one in a good way because you definitely don't take any shit from men. But I think this term, it's so interesting because obviously it's coined by a man who's using it in a derogatory way. But the problem is he's not saying... God, it is so terrible that these women have to serve these male characters in these narratives and they have to be a therapist mommy for them and their every need and that they are just so codependent on this woman to fix everything about them. And he doesn't criticize, you know, like lazy male writing or male directing. Instead, he just criticizes the actual actress playing this woman by proxy and then the character herself. So ultimately what that is doing is placing the blame squarely on the woman for something that is just typically male people in the industry not giving their female characters and actors enough good material to work with to make them fully dimensional.
1: And I also think... Exactly. Yeah. I think this term has become a massive... I think this term has become a massive catch-all for any fucking unusual or quirky woman in any movie, no matter how different they are and how no matter how much they don't fit the character type of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And I think it just becomes this like incredibly sexist term used to demean any
0: woman in any movie. You're totally right, because when you sort of like look it up or even when you're just going through movie reviews... Uh, It's so common that the characters are typecast as the manic pixie dream girl or the anti-manic pixie dream girl. And you want to be in the second camp always because... It's like, oh, well, she she's not catering to the man, right? So ultimately, what it's doing is still setting up women into these two camps against each other where they're not supposed to be playing to male desirability, but the fact that they're even being separated into these two camps of existence is inherently sexist and based on their performance and you know, like ranking their value. And I think, like, if we take it in a very strict sense, okay, a woman that is sort of put on the side. Guidelines while the man comes to you know, goes on a journey, comes to terms with himself. I think that's a universal experience for women in being treated as a means to an end for a man. And I don't think that makes the woman, the woman, the bad guy. I think that makes us raised to believe that we have to fix someone, that we're going to inherit a lover or a relationship that is inherently broken or unequal. Um and that we always need to be the nurturers or caregivers because of all these traditional gender roles. So while like I definitely emphasize with it, I emphasize with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl and her voice being, you know, stifled in favor of the stronger man. But then I also emphasize with her in a lot of instances because I don't think there's anything inherently sexist about the certain examples that we're going to talk about. But what is sexist is this sort of, like, incel backlash that she plays the ukulele. That whore is just trying to get a man's attention.
1: Exactly. Like, I don't think all of these characters in and of themselves are sexist but I think a lot of what makes it sexist is the backlash and response to these characters and kind of trying to make them into something they aren't you know like specifically in Elizabethtown and I'll get into this but Kristen Dunn Kirsten Dunn's character is not the main character not even like the second main character in the entire movie and the fact that Nathan Rabin decided to write a whole article defining her and reducing her to this like
0: one little trope is just kind of weird. Right. Yeah, it's always by putting that attention on her even if she's like not the main character. So it's not from her perspective, I'm guessing or like her narrative. Um, so you're not going to, like, expect the same kind of a development. That, of course, isn't to excuse people that, like, don't develop their female characters at all, but it's just so, like, picking and choosing these women of targets instead of saying, oh, like, this male director does this. Instead it is, uh, Kristen Dunst is playing this.
1: Precisely. And I mean, you know what? I can't even be too mad because I also... Would like a cute bubbly girl with dyed hair to come in and make me not depressed anymore with all of her weird antics so while yes i can critique the trope i kind of want it on some level i'm not even gonna lie
0: <laughs> i want to be that nihilistic brooding man that gets fixed honestly oh to be that brooding nihilistic man that is fixed by the manic pixie <laughs> dream girl it is such a blessed life So I know one popular author, not talking about movies specifically, because you don't see it as common with books as you do movies, which is why I think it is sexist to call women that if you're a man and not like because I would I would love it if a woman called me this in like a fun way. I would be like, ooh, you know, that's that's (laughs) really cool. I think what makes it really clear is that they're just looking for a female face to target is the fact that this is directed so much at women in movies. So then they have like real life actresses portraying them as opposed to a book character that's just, you know, like a creation in your mind when you're reading. But I think like the kind of best of both worlds to sort of see this in a way is John Green. Have you read his books and like seen his books developed into movies
1: yeah, I I read his books like three times
0: over in middle school, probably, maybe even more. Wow, so you were like, what's it called? You were a nerd fighter? I was not a nerd fighter. <laughs> I just liked the books. No, I don't care about John Green. I mean, I do respect him because he made me pass
1: AP US History and AP Psych, but like beyond that. Don't
0: he definitely care made me about pass. Him. He made me pass. He did not make me get college credit. So, like, I can give him that, but no more. (laughs) So John Green has been sort of criticized for using the women and his books as just a self-service for depressed men to sort of go on this like quirky journey where they find out more about themselves which I feel like I can definitely see shades of. Would you say that's the case in his books from like the male perspective, which I think is all of them except for The Fault in Our Stars, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a totally valid criticism. The weird part is that his
1: female characters are weirdly more developed than his male characters. Like, I think that his female characters are more three-dimensional in their personalities, but then they're also reduced to like, this fixer while his male characters tend to just be like, I'm depressed and I have nothing going for me. And I like women. So it's a really weird version of the trope, or I guess maybe maybe every version of the trope is like this, where the female character has more personality and more backstory to her, but then is reduced to this like simple caregiver concept while the
0: male is just like, I'm depressed, but now I'm fixed. I definitely read every single one of his books by 2014. I don't know if he's come out with a new book, but I really Yeah, remember, anything past 2014, I have no idea. Yeah. I've I've totally fallen out of touch with um, you know, John Green currently. So anything in this conversation is referring to John Green like five or six years ago. Um I have <laughs> yeah. no idea what he's done since then. But um yeah, I remember being so uh, jealous, quote unquote, of the main female character, and then also like wanting to be her at the same time, but then also wanting to be the guy in the book. So that was definitely a very weird mental area for my young bisexual mind that didn't realize. <laughs> that. I never wanted to be the man and i was never really jealous of the female characters
1: i just wanted to either be them or like be with them like i wanted to fuck them
0: yeah i didn't want to be the man per se i just wanted to be taken on this like adventure in the middle of the night to like fucking sea world by this really hot girl like that yeah that i big i still big want dream. that <laughs> i still want that look I know we're saying since 2014 nothing has changed about me since 2014 that is still my number one word. <laughs> yeah I'm the same person if you know me if you knew me in 2014 I'm the same human yeah. six years later yeah so I wouldn't say his books are like the the most problematic but like there definitely is problematic aspects of them probably feeds into like internalized misogyny I feel I like think John Green's th- annoying Right, none of this compares to John Green as a person. I'm about to shit. Like, on I just John feel like Green all of. <laughs> I just feel like he just like is
1: like I respect girls and women, so
0: right, we're no, good. And I'm that's like, that's the bare minimum, man. That's what he says, and that's not what he does. And again, this is 2015. I don't know if he has like. Gone to a Marxist feminist boot camp since then, or yeah, it turns like out he's like a huge, like Marxist Leninist <laughs> feminist now, and we're just like completely he's, off. Base. He's got like the, the sickle in his bio <laughs> and, the, and the red rose in the hand. But, um, I remember certain people were not really like coming at him, but just drawing attention to the fact that a male writer was getting so much attention. For for writing from the female experience, there's a general dialogue on it, and he went off. I I guess he was just like really fucking triggered by this. He went off with a Tumblr post titled "The Fault in Our Stars has not been successful because I am male," and I scoured the internet for this internet (laughs) post because I really wanted to see what it said. But honestly, that title tells me all I need to know because no one was saying that the book is so terrible that um the only reason it's successful is because he's a man. Just that like obviously its popularity was boosted because of people's like implicit bias, whether that's consumers, whether that's people in the editing agency. That's my first grievance. Work. Yeah and I mean like I feel like that's a fair criticism because if
1: I was a I don't know if I wrote that book as a woman like people would be like what type of fucked up fantasy two teenagers dying of cancer what the hell's wrong with you you weird sicko and then are kind of allowed the like space to do that and not
0: seen as like crazy and they'd be like what type of weird fan fiction are you into dude like if I wrote that no, yeah, and I, uh, I'm sorry, a woman would not have gotten away with fucking keeping a scene in where two teenagers just start going at it in the Anne Frank house, and it's like all okay. Everyone, no, they get a fucking round And then of everyone applause. claps, and yes. it's like, woo-hoo. They're like, yes, please, please continue to make out in the memorial to Holocaust victims. <laughs> so then, in response to criticism about that, he says, so the main character is called Augustus, right? And he has cancer. He says, Oh, Augustus would really feel like comforted by Anne Frank because she stood for hope and love. And if you think about it, um, Anne Frank just died of an illness like most people. And it's like, (laughs) What? A treatable illness in a death camp,
1: totally the same (laughs) as getting cancer. Being persecuted for your race and having to hide in an attic and being sent to a death camp is the exact same thing as getting cancer
0: he sounds like those people who talk about covid and are like well
1: <laughs> they're like did you know the death rates are actually super low people are actually dying from covid yeah
0: they're like people, they honestly something like, else. yeah people
1: feel like they actually had pre-existing conditions and i'm like yes the pre-existing conditions were worsened by covid dumbass we they find out have
0: died if they
1: didn't have covid
0: we find out today that like John Green is posting like 5G tower pictures. He's, like, he's something to think
1: John about. Green's fucking like publicity team is going to completely come to us. Right. Like, sue us for slander.
0: Okay. No, he is going to sue us for slander because my, my last little gripe about John Green before we start on the movies is that there was, well, first he started dating his wife by uninviting everyone else to their group date. Do you remember that? I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. But see, the way I saw it is he, like, did a play with his friends,
1: and I hate that I know what you're talking about, but he (laughs) sent, like, an email and invited them to her to a movie, and then he was like, hey, guys, don't come. I always saw it as, like, all of his other friends
0: were in on it, and it was, like, a little meet cute. Really? Okay, I feel like... I feel like she was totally okay, may I don't know what the relationship was like before, but my vibe was that she was left in the dark because he was too whatever to ask her out by herself. So he decided to like deceive her. My view is very insidious. But of course everyone's like, See, oh, I'm I didn't see sweet. it like that.
1: You know what? What do you guys think? Everyone leave in the comments on our last post did John
0: Green manipulate his wife or <laughs> Was it a little me and cute? What you okay. Think? All right. We'll wait to hear from the people. I think the biggest fuck up that makes me be like, John Green, what am I supposed to say? Is he a wonderful guy? No, I'm not going to say that. Because <laughs> you, I saw John Green denies accusations of sexual assault. I was like, what? Oh my God. So... I look through this, and these news articles from um, 2015 are referring to this person on Tumblr as a young girl. So <laughs> I tried to find this person's Tumblr. They deleted the Tumblr because of the backlash. So I actually never could confirm whether they identified. As a young woman, but a lot of other people at the time were saying they were a young woman, so I'm going to guess they had some information I can't access now. Or they might have been making an assumption, I don't know, but it seemed to be the consensus, um, which I think is important because of how John Green reacted. So the original post is, in more or less words, there's no accusation. It just says, John Green feels like someone who would chaperone a pool party and scoot his chair too close to you. So not, <laughs> not like, you know, what are those memes? Like Millie Bobby Brown, like ran me over with a car and then like shot me in the face. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, nothing like at all that he did anything. Just like John Green makes me feel like uh, this kind of way. So that he's, like, creepy. So I guess that comes from the fact that, like, his fan base was mainly teenage girls. And this is allegedly a teenage girl, too. So, okay. So I get that's, like, not technically a nice thing to say. But I feel like it's very valid for... You know, I've definitely felt that way as a woman. I'm like, I don't have anything, like, negative about this person. I just don't get a good feeling. So I'm just going to act differently and just be cautious. Because you as a woman can never like discount your knee-jerk reaction or intuition about a situation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this young girl talking about that she feels bothered by this man. So John Green responds to it. You want me to defend myself against the implication that I sexually abuse children? Okay, I do not sexually abuse children. Throwing around that kind of accusation is sick and libellous and most importantly damages the discourse around the actual sexual abuse of children. When you use accusations of pedophilia as a way of insulting people whose work you don't like, you trivialize abuse. I'm tired of seeing the language of social justice, important language doing important work, misused as a way to dehumanize others and treat them hatefully. So I just feel like, okay, so obviously your knee jerk reaction to that is going to be like, you know, anger upset, shocked that someone's saying they feel this way about you. But no one ever accused yeah. about anything. She just said this is the vibe I get. So instead of this like fucking 40-year-old man being like, you know what, that like I would never do something like that. I would never be like lecherous towards younger women. Like that's not me at all. Can you tell me like what I did that made you feel that way? Like I feel like you can say that's not me and that like doesn't represent me. But at the same time you're a young woman who has a perspective on older men that I don't. And like the whole thing is just framed as like someone made an allegation against him when that's totally not it. And other fucking young adult authors are coming out on Twitter saying like, John Green is fighting the good fight. Like people need to leave him alone. This, this fucking girl like de- oh. deleted her Tumblr account. Cause I feel like she got probably so much fucking backlash. Cause this was picked up by like Buzzfeed, the Washington post like what the fuck so uh, that's that's my line with john green i'm like if you were really an ally towards wom- women like yes you have a right to be upset upon hearing something like that but your actions do not match this brand of feminism that you supposedly peddle
1: i feel like he's just a classic like gen x i'm a good man man or yeah gen x i'm a good man i i don't think women should like have to clean the house so what do you mean I'm sexy? That's just <laughs> John Green in my head. Enough about John Green. Do we want to talk about our first movie? So our first movie is Elizabeth Town. Um, Elizabeth Town came out in 2004. The screenplay is by Cameron Crowe. It's also directed by him. It stars Kristen Dunst as Claire and Orlando Bloom as Drew. So Drew works for a large shoe company, and he designed a shoe, but it fails, and the company loses a billion dollar. Essentially, so his boss like completely berates him and is like, Hey, you're a failure. You did this, you designed a shit show, and you need to take public accountability for this instead of the company. and Look at all these people we have to fire because of this shit show. Drew's like, All right, damn. And then he like does this interview where he like takes full accountability and it's like, Yes, I lost the money for this company, I lost a billion dollars for this company, and then he goes home because he's fired so drew's pretty much like what the hell so he throws out all of his stuff except for this weird exercise bike and a knife and he makes this suicide exercise machine where the knife is supposed to like plunge into his heart like repeatedly it's pretty fucking gruesome but then the knife doesn't really stay up because he's taped it like duct taped it and then his sister calls him and he's like uh can you call me back later and she's like, no, I really need to talk to you. And he's like, no, please call me back later. I'll talk to you later. Because he's trying to kill himself. And he's like, I'll just talk to you later. And she's like, no, Drew, our dad is dead. He died while visiting his hometown in bumfuck Kentucky. And you need to go get his body because mom's on a manic high. And Drew's wow. like, okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> I'll do this for you guys. But it his head's like, all right, whatever. I'm going to kill myself when I get home. I'm going to get back on that bike verbatim he says i'm gonna get back on that bike so whatever he goes he gets on this flight to bumfuck kentucky and on this flight he meets this flight attendant named claire who's like crazy perky kind of annoying she keeps pestering him like moves him to first class because the flight's like empty and she's like all right whatever because he just kind of is dealing with it then claire comes back over and she sits with him and she's like hey hi hello and just keeps talking to him and then she's like okay where are you going after this? And he's like, oh, I'm going to Elizabethtown. And she's like, this land, this area is really hard to navigate by yourself for the first time. And this is like pre-GPS, like 2004, where you use like paper maps, paper directions. So she's like, I'm going to draw you a map and give you directions. And so she draws him a map and gives him directions. And she's like, emphasizing this exit 60B. And she's like, do not miss it. Don't miss it. So then he misses 60B. And he's told to breakdown in the car where he's like, I fucking missed 60 bi I'm going to kill myself. And it's pretty funny because, honestly, same. That's me when I drive. But eventually he finds his way to Elizabeth town. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets to Elizabeth Town and everyone there knows him because it's a really tiny town. And they're like, oh, my God, you made that shoe. You're amazing. And he's like, dot, dot, dot. Because the article hasn't leaked yet where it's like, we lost a billion dollars because of the shoe. This company is failing. So he's like, haha, yeah. So he meets his family he doesn't know because his family, I don't know, they're like bu- country bumpkins, like his family that he doesn't know. And during his family are like the city slickers, to use old terminology. So everyone from this town loves his dad and is like, wow, what a great man he is. He's a great man. He was a great man. We love him. So drew's kind of awkward and he's like doesn't know what to do because they're grieving more than he's grieving and he's like oh i'm sorry you guys and they're like um why are you apologizing you're the one with the dead father and so then eventually like he like goes through the motions of like a viewing and like whatever so he gets back to his hotel and he's bored and he's suicidal again and he's watching this like knife infomercial and he's like hmm but then he distracts himself by calling his sister, who doesn't answer, his ex-girlfriend, who doesn't answer. And then Claire, the flight attendant, who gave, her, gave him her number on the map. And no one answers, and he's like, damn. Then they all call back at once, and it's like this like stupid montage where he's like switching in between all phone calls. So then he starts to talk to Claire, and they talk on the phone all night. And he's like, by the way, my dad is dead. That's why I'm here. And I didn't really know him, and we were supposed to go on a road trip together this summer. And he kind of just, like, unloads on Claire, and she kind of unloads back, and they just, like, talk, and they're like, wow, I feel like I've been asleep my whole life. And they stay up all night talking about, like, random stuff. So then they're like, we should meet in the morning, because it's, like, 4 a.m. We should meet and watch the sunset together, because Claire's like, I'm, like, 40 minutes away from you. So they drive, they meet at the sunset, and they're like, oh, this is kind of anticlimactic and boring. They're like, all right, what do we do? And Drew has to go shopping for an urn for his cremated father. (laughs) So they go and do that. They have a kikitsi shopping trip looking at urns. Then they go on this like Kentucky Mecca trip and they visit the Colonel Sanders grave and they like run through a graveyard <laughs> that graveyard together and like it's all cute. And they have like some weird talks where Claire's like, We're the substitute people, like we're the side characters. And Drew's like, Oh, I'm not used to a girl like you. <laughs> and then the day ends, and the next day Drew goes and gets the urn, and then he gets back to the hotel and Claire's there waiting for him. <laughs> and then they have sex. And then Claire leaves in the next morning and she wants Drew to ask her to stay, but he's like slumped, passed out. But then he wakes up in time and he's like, oh, wait. And he like runs and goes get, goes and gets her. And then she's like, oh, hi. And then he just starts going on and on about he's, how he's this like massive fuck up and how he lost a billion dollars and how he's a failure and how he's suicidal. And just like goes on this like tangent. And she's like, okay. Like, all right. So what? What do you want me to do about this? Failing is fine. Grow up. And then they kiss. And then she leaves. And it's very weird. So then his his dad's memorial happens. And by the way, his mom flew out at some point here, and she's gonna go give like a eulogy and speech. So that happens at the memorial. And his mom is on a Kai, like I mentioned. And so she gives this weird speech about life without Mitch, her husband. And it ends with a boner joke and a tap dance.
0: And then Honestly, one of his, I need you to uh, do that for me at my funeral. I need you to promise if I go I, first.
1: I will gonna... do that. I will tap dance and make sure I throw a boner joke in there at your Okay, funeral. thank you so much. And then his cousin performs, like, sings with his band at the funeral. He, he sings Freebird. And then there's like this bird that flies and it catches on fire. So the entire room starts to catch on fire. So everyone has to evacuate. And Claire shows up like in the middle of that. And then Drew sees her. And then she's like, Hey, I made you this map. I made you this scrapbook. And turns out she's planned a whole road trip for Drew to take with his dad because he was talking about how he was supposed to take a road trip with his dad. So she's like, you go with him, meaning his ashes. And like, I planned this whole trip out for you and it's this like scrapbook with a bunch of pictures and cds like really niche specific shit so then drew goes on this road trip and there's like this montage my personal favorite places he goes to are the lorraine hotel in memphis which is where mlk was shot and murdered and then the site of the oklahoma city
0: bombing is there any context for him visiting these places
1: it's just like he goes to all these like weird places like that she's like mapped out for him. Um so Drew kind of goes nuts on this drive and he's like <sighs> talking to the urn and he's like, Yeah, I'm gonna this, kill myself. I'm sorry, still. that I'm gives the movie such a myself. that gives the movie such a dark turn. So yeah, Drew goes kind of crazy on this drive and he's like, I'm gonna kill myself still. I'm gonna get home and kill myself. I did my job. So then this next stop is this one of the largest farmers markets in the world. And oh look, surprise, there's directions to find Claire. So he runs around the farmer's market following the directions to find her. He finds her. They kiss. The movie ends. (laughs)
0: Damn. Okay. I feel... So I... (laughs) I feel like I was thinking... I don't think it's a terrible movie. Yeah. It doesn't sound terrible. It definitely sounds um, a bit out there. It almost feels like one of those movies where the main character is dead the entire time and in purgatory... Um, like, from, from the exorcism. Yeah, he actually hit himself on the suicide bike. That's what I, like, the way it's, it sounds very surreal. Honestly, I feel like that is, I mean, that might be awesome, but.
1: (laughs) I think the whole point is that it's supposed to be a little bit of a fantasy. I mean, like, don't we all wish death wasn't this, like, terribly sad thing? And, like, don't we all want this cute, quirky girl to come help us with, like, the most difficult part of our life? Don't we all kind of crave human interactions that feel a little bit too ridiculous to be true? Like, I know people don't act like this in real life, but sometimes they do, especially in, like, moments of grief. I don't know. I think this, I think Elizabethtown is a movie about, like, craziness and guilt that happens after loss, and... I don't know, like, it's about grief and coping with failure and death and lost chances and time you will never get back. So fuck Nathan Rabin for watching this and focusing on Claire's character. Because she totally does not fix him. Like, Drew is totally suicidal, depressed, nothing is fixed in the end. Like, he's still actively sad and nothing has really changed and he still is like, damn, I missed out on these, like, relationships with my dad and other family members. I don't know. And, And, like, that doesn't change even at the ending, I mean, the only thing that really changes him is, like, the whole trip with his dad and, like, some semi getting to know his dad and spending time with his dad. Like, that's what changes him, not this fucking random woman.
0: Right. I don't even feel like what she did is so, oh, she's doing everything for him. I mean, what? Like, she made, like, some really nice gesture for him, a sort of morbid road trip for him and his father's ashes. I mean, I don't know. I... I just feel like people do ridiculously kind gestures for one another when someone experiences loss. The most
1: important, like the most important scenes in this movie, are in relation to Jonah's dad, not the moments with Claire. So fuck Nathan Rabin for discounting it to just a romance. I think he's wrong and sexist. And I think Claire's a little bit of a quirky, weird character, but I think that was just to emphasize that like death is strange, and this is what you're missing out on if you're not like living life to the
0: fullest. Right. It sounds cute. Um, very, like, <laughs> cute in a dark way. It seems like a dark comedy. Kind of reminds me of Seeking friend, uh, Seeking uh-huh. a Friend for the End of the World, which I'll talk about later. But it, it seems to have that same vibe. Yeah, uh, definitely. All right. You want to talk about Scott Pilgrim? Hell yeah, baby. <laughs> Kira, you've watched this movie, right? I have watched
1: this movie.
0: And I definitely have like the Ramona Flowers haircut right now. <laughs> I definitely see it. And your favorite song of all time is Ramona Flowers <laughs> no, it
1: is not.
0: I know it's not your favorite song of all time, but um I still I still want you to sing it to me sometime. Um <laughs> just yeah, i just we're you know, not recording i'll
1: serenade you
0: okay for those who don't know who um ramona flowers ruined a whole generation of women is about it's like this random soundcloud rapper uh who made this track i uh, he clearly is an incel total incel Um, what are some of the lyrics? She saw Ramona flowers and felt so empowered (laughs) by a movie made in Hollywood. All right. BPD and ecstasy. conceited with low self-esteem. She's a teenage dream if you hate yourself. Bright dyed hair and obnoxious clothes. Obnoxious clothes. (laughs) Clothes. Thinks communism is the way to go. She's a whore, a whole, a dime, a Jezebel. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> look, yes, yes, it was written by a terrible man. And I will definitely not stream it and give him money. You know, like that's, that's something you should illegally download. But I feel like I think this is a song you can sing with your girls at his expense. Because I think that would really make Precisely. Him, his little pea brain explode. Like, I think he'd be mad that we're reclaiming it. He would be really mad. And he would probably write a diss track about us. And honestly, that would be the best thing that could ever come out of this man in his entire life. That would be... Him. I would. L- I want, him I want him to. I want him to. I want him to. Okay, so we're going to make it our theme song. And yeah, and then we'll update you <laughs> on, our, on our SoundCloud rapper feud. So this song, I guess I bring it up because it kind of... It kind of summarizes why I hate Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Not even because the movie is like particularly horrible towards women. Um, It's really not like the most sexist movie I've ever seen. And it's not, I mean, it's not a bad quality movie. Um, So it's done in like video game style because it's based off a series of comic books. So, you know, in terms of the pacing and, uh like the spatial focus and there's like visual automatopias like it's very you know that's like pow across the screen um that's not very like professional professional film critic words but it definitely is a a fun and engaging movie i can see that but i hated this movie I could not see it, I I really, and what really solidified that feeling for me rather than it just being like, ah, this was a movie I didn't like, was that if you sort of look at this movie and poke around at the articles written about it, at the YouTube videos about it, all of the comments are just filled with men putting women down, because they see themselves emboldened by this story Michael Sarah is the main character, so he's clearly like he's supposed to be a loser and he's supposed to be an anti hero, right? Because he's supposed to start out as a bad guy. And allegedly, allegedly, he has a character arc where he becomes a good guy at the end. No, he does not. There is no fucking redemption for his character. That is such a marketing lot. <laughs> not, he gets worse by the end. So the idea that he gets better is just laughable to me. And I think really shows how out of touch some men are with the reality of what it is to be a good man. The actual um, comic books that this movie is based on, the, the author based the main character, Scott Pilgrim, on himself. And he did it in a very self-deprecating way about how he used to be in his youth and how he's learned to, um, you know, be a respectful, better person. And I think he would have to be that way in order to make a book where he's essentially criticizing himself. I think it's clear that the author actually had Mm -hmm. some sort of self-awareness, which, you know, like good for him. I haven't read the book, so I can't judge on it. Another thing that's important to note is that the the original author of the comic books is also um, half Korean. He wrote Scott Pilgrim as a white guy, and he said this is sort of like his fantasy slash alter ego white guy who is, you know, making all the same fuck-ups that he did in his life. And the rest of the characters are sort of like racially ambiguous. He said he felt that he should have made his characters less racially ambiguous So then Hollywood would have then casted actors of color. I don't feel like that's his fault because I feel like Hollywood would have whitewashed this. So it's not the, you know, Korean Canadian man's fault that he had a racially ambiguous book. And the only other. Non white characters are just fucking walking stereotypes who are on the screen for less than two minutes. So, yeah, the racism mm-hmm. is definitely present. The sexism is present. So, with that being said, let's fucking get into it. So, we open up in Toronto, Canada. We see Michael Sarah. He's sex, um, I said sex pilgrim. He's Scott Pilgrim. He has a, bo- a band called Sex Bombs, but they want to pronounce it Sex Bombs. Whatever, that's like a running gag. I'm just gonna call it sex bombs. I don't feel like going through going through the effort to call it whatever they wanna call it. <laughs> so he his roommate is Macaulay Colkin's brother, Kieran Colkin. Um I thought they were the same person. I didn't realize sexy were, king. <laughs> he is very sexy. I thought I thought he was the same kid from Home Alone. I didn't realize they were two different people. So this was this was very surprising. Shaking my head. So the only other two characters that are really redeeming are Aubrey Plaza's in this. And she's from Wilmington, Delaware. That's my motherfucking girl. I really love her. She's great in this. And Brie really? Lawrence. I didn't know that. Yeah, she's from Delaware. She's one of, like, the few Delaware celebrities. Um, except for Biden, but we don't think... Hmm. That's, like, that's what we have to offer. So we open in Toronto. No, know jersey has Snooki, and that's about it. A jersey has so much... Jersey has a lot of really famous
1: people from here. It's actually crazy because a lot of people live like up near New York. Right. Like Whitney
0: Houston. Christie, duh. (laughs) Chris Christie. So they're sitting at a kitchen table and his band is all ragging on him and his roommate, Macaulay Culkin's brother, that he is dating a high schooler called Knives Chow. And she is an Asian woman. She is the only um, main non-white character I was talking about. And they're all like, bro, what the fuck? I, he's not, I think he's 21 in this movie or 22. And they imply that she's like of age. Regardless, it's still like, dude, why are you dating a high schooler? Right. So he like, you know, it's still grimy. And he says, oh, like, we're not doing anything. Um, we don't even like date. We just hang out. But like. We, we don't kiss or anything, like, once we touched hands. And big point on this, because this comes up later. But he makes it very clear, like, oh, like, we're keeping it entirely appropriate. I'm like, mm, sure, sure you are. So he says, I, I wanted something simple. And we, we kind of get this, you know, um filler about his ex-girlfriend who is Brie Larson who is playing a rock star called Envy Adams is her stage name um, she's super hot in this she has like sort of like half up ponytails fringe bangs she wears like full white leather get up she's super hot and it's clear that she blew up in the musical industry Scott couldn't handle it Um, because Scott can't handle, like, women's sexuality throughout this entire movie. And, like, no, he does not learn to at the end. It's clear that she, you know, sort of, like, owned it and became successful that way and is in charge of herself and her sexuality. And this is very threatening to him. He calls her, like, a fucking bitch on more than one occasion. So, fuck you, Scott, again. So, knives, his high school girlfriend, is just a rebound. She's phrased as, um... And there's a scene where his girlfriend knives tries to come over when his band is practicing and she's like a fan girl, you know, she's like clearly a, a young and happy 17 year old, like just like your normal girl, really interested in music. And she's clearly like very excited. Um, but the movie just again, like plays her for laughs this whole time. And he's like, you can sit in the corner if you're good. Like, you can't talk. So, you know, from the beginning, this guy's an asshole. And we'll, we'll, see, we'll see this come up time and time again. So, you know, montage of him going on dates with his high school girlfriend. They go to an arcade, um, questionable. They go to the library and check out her calculus books. And that's where he meets the so-called manic pixie dream girl of this movie, who is Ramona Flowers. Uh, and like you were saying earlier, she has her hair a different color in every, like, main stage of this movie. I think she dyes it, like, four different colors over the course of the movie. And she wears, like, definitely steampunk, cybergoth clothes. Uh, she's super cute. She's clearly not interested in Scott Pilgrim. And Michael Sarah is, you know, staring at her. And it's all like, oh, like the world's standing still kind of moment. But she clearly could not give a fuck about him, right? So we cut to later. Michael Cera is going to a house party with his band. And he sees Ramona Flowers there again. So the movie actually says, because, right, it's like video game style. So there's a narrator and mm-hmm. there's, you know, quick cuts and there's, writing flashing across the screen in that like 90s video game letters and it says he stalked her and it's him stalking her at the party so of course it's like played for laughs (laughs) ha 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 um he's obsessed with her asking everyone about her and Aubrey Plaza like says like fuck off cocksucker it's really good um she she really made this movie for me thank you Aubrey for being there for me (laughs) watching this event so much but he does some dirt digging he finds out she is an Amazon delivery driver she's a Bezos slut and she's the only Amazon delivery (laughs) driver in Toronto which is which is a funny gag and he's like oh my god So he goes home, he orders a package from Amazon and he is sitting by the door, literally waiting for it to arrive. So when it eventually arrives, he decides he's not going to sign it because he doesn't want her to go away. So again, this is like cutesy and Ramona this whole movie it, she definitely is a depressed person she's not very manic at all and that's how the actress is playing it like she she's just like had a really hard life Um, and she just seems, like, really ambivalent towards him, and, like, she just really doesn't give a shit, so she's like, sure, let's hang out, why not? Just sort of, like, on a random whim, because I guess she's alone in this new city, and it's just like, whatever, I'll hang out with this fucking weird guy. I feel like sometimes we do stuff like that in life. Yeah. Um, (laughs) like, sometimes you just, I don't know, sometimes you gotta hang out with the weird guy. Yeah, I, I feel like we've all been there, so... Ramona does this. They go to a playground as a date because Scott is a fucking child. They're swinging. And then they go back to her place. He's still dating knives, right? He hasn't broken up with knives, his high school girlfriend, anything. Um, They go back to her place. Things are, like, kind of heating up a bit she um says she's gonna go get some tea, or no, she says she's gonna go get a blanket. Sorry. Um, and she disappears in her house. So he decides to like walk around looking for her for the blanket, which I know he was not walking around looking for her in the blanket. like I'm like, why why didn't you just sit your ass down? She was gone for thirty seconds. He's clearly just being. <laughs> A fucking little pig. So he walks in on her, changing, and in his defense, he does like cover his eyes immediately and like turn around. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. But then she comes close to him and she's like, No, I like it. Uh, which, you know, okay, Ramona, that's okay. Um, you can do so much better, but like, okay, okay, girl. They're about to have sex, and then she changes her mind and she's like, You know what? I don't want to have sex with you. Um, And he actually takes it really well. So I will say this is the sole healthy moment in this movie. Good job movie for like portraying that in a very normal (laughs) way. But that's it. That's all you're getting from me. That's the only thing I recognize as good. The only Uh, praise. Right. But they're still, you know, they're still making out and stuff. So he's still definitely cheating on his girlfriend's knives by going on a date and almost hooking up with this girl. So next we see that Scott is at a battle of the bands with sex bombs. Um, And they're all really hoping to win a music deal with this very famous producer that only goes by Gideon so far. And they're all talking like, you know, we got to win so we can impress Gideon and get this contract deal with Gideon. It's going to be our big date. Right. So Mm -hmm. we arrive and then both knives and Ramona are there at the same time. Uh Oh, and you'll see like multiple times through the movie, knives who we never really see as anything but like a sweet kind of hyper immature girl because obviously because she's a fucking teenager um all of a sudden she's like oh that girl's a fat ass and ramona is just so mean to her and they're like putting each other down over fucking scott pilgrim and i don't it didn't really feel realistic it it didn't feel fair to either of these female characters, which I feel like ultimately is the trap of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl because these are female actors doing their best with this fucking lazy script. I, it just did not feel true to life at all. And it felt totally out of character for the both of them. Um, but then the plot finally starts and we have a realization that Scott has to defeat Ramona's seven deadly exes, um, which are six ex-boyfriends and one ex (gasps) girlfriend. right? So, again, I'm not going to give this movie credit because the author and his book is what was the original idea, but this is, like, obviously very smart and fun. So, again, it's all video game style, so he has to defeat them by killing them, but it's not really killing them, you know, it's like fake video game violence, and they're just restarting Mm -hmm. the level when you die, um, and that's important later. So the first boyfriend is Matthew Patel. He is a complete um, stereotype. Again, um, he's like implied to be of like Indian descent. And then Ramona says, oh, I'm sorry. Like I just dated him. I know it's embarrassing, but he was the only non-white guy that i knew and i and ramona's a fucking oh, white God. girl in this movie i was like ramona what the fuck are, i know she was racially ambiguous in the books i don't know if she said this line in the books but she is a white woman in this movie so now we see scott finally he defeats the first x right and we see that he's finally gonna break up with knives to be with ramona even after he cheated he's gonna do the right thing now, I guess. Breaking up with her and she's clearly like very upset because this is implied to be like her first relationship, kind of. He just totally pulls this fucking such, he goes, are you even allowed to date outside of your race to her? which is just so fucking, oh yeah, it's just such fucking pig shit because there's no like implication that that's like even a problem or that like they've had a conversation about that. It's clearly just him like trying to be fucking manipulative by bringing her race into it. So I'm like, honestly, fuck you and Ramona. You kind of deserve each other. That's how I felt at this point. And then a lot of random shit happens with him and Ramona, like dating, etc., etc there's one good scene where he goes to a coffee shop where Aubrey Plaza is working and she says caramel macchiato for fuck pilgrim. And I really like that. So then suddenly knives is crazy because it's convenient to the plot and she starts stalking him just like he stalked Ramona, but now it's like creepy and there's serial music playing. Uh, And it's still played for laughs, but it's like, Oh, like this girl's crazy and Scott pilgrims not. And she decides to start dating uh, one of the, the kind of uh, members of his band who they call Young Neil to make him jealous. So she's still like around while Scott's dating Ramona because she's now dating this other guy who's Scott's friend. Uh, we see Knives dye her hair to emulate Ramona, right? So now her character's just totally, oh, I'm obsessed with Scott. I'm doing anything to get back with Scott. Uh, so the second ex-boyfriend of Ramona that Scott has to defeat is actually dating Scott's ex-girlfriend, who I mentioned at the beginning, Brie Larson, who's Envy Adams, um, and she's dating a vegan named Todd. Um, And there's this bit about he has superpowers from being vegan, um, and Scott eventually tricks him by uh, making him drink uh, something with milk in it, and then the vegan police come and take away his powers, and, you know, that's fine and whatever. So before this they're all invited as VIPs to the back of the show after Envy Adams plays um, they're like okay Envy Adams plays she covers black metric by um, I'm sorry black sheep by metric which is a really good cover super hot great scene uh, best part of the movie probably so after the show they all go backstage uh, nice is fangirling over her, her as well and Then it sort of clicks for Knives that this is Scott's ex-girlfriend. So then Knives yells, you kissed the lips that kissed mine. I was like, hold on a second. Scott Pilgrim is defending this relationship by saying like, oh, we're not doing anything. But all of a sudden Knives is saying they've kissed. So what else have they done? So Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim was canceled. I'm sorry. It was the Scott Pilgrim is over party for me at this point. Because clearly he's been lying (laughs) and manipulating this poor fucking girl. So then um, Envy Adams' vegan boyfriend punches Knives in the face for no fucking reason. And Envy Adams is, like, good. So, again, they always, you know, they have these well-developed female characters, and they just throw shit at them to make them not likable or bad. So, I don't accept this as canon, um, because they just treat their female characters like, shit. <laughs> okay, apparently, apparently they're crazy, they're stalkers, they're sluts, or they're, like, okay with abuse, right? There's no winning. So, Scott defeats this boyfriend, too. And after he defeats the boyfriend, they're leaving and Adams behind. And he calls her Natalie, which I guess is her non-stage name. And she's like, Natalie, no one's called me that name in so long. And it, he's like, oh, maybe people should call you Natalie more. And it's like, shut the fuck up, right? So he's just like... Right. Yeah, don't... Um, You know, the stage name isn't you. Like, you're selling... It's basically like you're selling yourself. You're selling your body. It's so wrong. You know, sh- blah, blah. uh, terrible. Then he defeats Chris Pine. Chris Pine was good in this movie. He was funny. That scene is really like a break from the plot, but Macaulay Culkin's brother was in it a lot, which was good. So, yeah, not much happens there. Then the next one is the ex-girlfriend who is played by Mae Whitman. Um, the girlfriend shows up while Scott and Ramona are at a club, and she says, you know, Scott, you must now defeat me. And he's like, oh, my God, Ramona, I didn't know you were by." And she goes, it was just a phase, which, like, all right, like, Ramona, whatever, whatever you want to say. Uh, and Scott Pilgrim's like, but it was a sexy phase. So now to add another thing to the Scott shit list, he like fetishizes by women. So <laughs> I know I'm taking this movie too seriously. I don't care. I fucking hate this movie. I hate Scott Pilgrim. This changed Michael Sarah for me. Holly's oh, like, I'm actually writing my thesis on this. I'm, I'm actually writing my thesis on fucking Scott Pilgrim versus the world. So he defeats her by making her orgasm by electrocuting her. Jesus Uh, fucking. Which is an invention of the movie, because in the book, he just, like, defeats her normally, but, you know, clearly they had to make it something sexual about the bisexual woman. Um, And as she's Mae Whitman, the ex-girlfriend's dying by orgasming, she's like, you'll never make her feel this way to Scott, which is true. Um, Mm -hmm. That was good. So then there's the two Asian-American twins I talked about, earlier he must defeat them he does they literally nothing happens he just defeats them right so this whole time his his band sex bombs is kind of raising in popularity and they're like angling for that album deal with that album deal with gideon right the shocker is now he's defeated all seven exes um him and his ramona have like a semi breakup because he's like oh have you um have you slept with like everyone or something like that? Basically slut shames her and she's like, I can't do this. And they get in an argument and then they break up. And uh, then she leaves to be with this other guy and they're like, Oh my God, like who's this other guy? They find out he's, you know, the big baddie at the end of the video game. He's the eighth evil X. And it's Gideon, the executive album producer they're talking about this entire time. And he is, like, an evil scientist genius character. He's put this microchip in Ramona's brain that um, apparently makes her obsessed with him. And it's, like, impossible for her to ever leave him, really, and, like, truly break up with him. Really weird plot point doesn't make sense into anything, but... I guess it's worth a mention. And as she's leaving to get in Gideon's car after she's out of this club and broken up with Scott, she says to Scott, you were the nicest guy I ever dated. Uh, No, not true. And then she says, I had a really rough past and like you you were like, you're too good. You're too good, Scott. It's like, no, he's not. He's like probably one of the least (sighs) nicest guys you've ever dated, Ramona. Like I've seen all of the seven exes He was the worst. He's the villain of this movie. They should have been defeating him all along. So then the next part is a bit confusing, but it's sort of like if you think about the final battle in a video game, he decides he's going to go defeat Gordon, win back Ramona, get the microchip out of the brain. It's very like princess at the end of the video game, like Princess Peach sort of like rescue trope. Uh, So he's breaking into Gideon's lair um, and... He gets to Gideon and he says, I love you, Ramona. I'm here to save you. And then, because it's a video game style, right? A flaming sword pops out of his chest and it says, Scott earned the power of love. And Knives comes in, but it turns out Knives is trying to defeat Ramona because she's jealous at Ramona. Okay, again. Um, So because this is happening, Gideon kills him. He dies and he goes to the video game afterlife. So Ramona's there, and she said, "You need to defeat those people for yourself, Scott. You were defeating all my exes for me. You need to do something for yourself." So with this token of wisdom, he restarts the level. So we go back. He's outside Gideon's lair. Um, you know, he busts in again, and this time he's like, "I'm here. Like I'm going to take you down." Now it's. Scott has earned the power of self respect, and a new sword comes out of his chest. Um, he's much more badass. He kills Gideon, and this is his redemption, quote unquote. He apologizes to Knives and Ramona for cheating on both of them by the overlap between the two of their relationships. Uh, so when the movie ends, Knives and Ramona and him are walking out of Gideon's lair, and Ramona says she's going to walk away into this door in the middle of the sky. Cause again, this is fantasy and I is like, go get her, go be with her. And, you know, being encouraging and nice. And he's like, okay. Um, and they walk into this door and that's the end of the movie. Um, so the whole, the whole redemption arc, I find this false because how he finally won in the end is by earning the power of self-respect and not the power of love. I think Scott needed to learn how to think about someone else rather than himself. So I don't think this is redemption at all. The only, the single good thing he does in this movie that is for anyone really else at all is apologize. He literally just says, I'm sorry for cheating on you guys. That's it. That's all he does. And that apparently is his redemption in this movie. So would you Cate? Ramona Flowers as a manic pixie dream girl? No, I wouldn't because while she does lead him on this journey by her eight evil exes, um, she makes it clear that she's not really, because of her own problem, she's not really interested in, like, you know, in the end of the movie, she's ready to walk away and just, like, be done with him. And she's happy he wants to come with her wherever she goes. But it's clear like the whole time that she has like a lot of emotional baggage and she is figuring herself out um, and she doesn't do any therapy for Scott or really anything for Scott. Like, yeah, they're dating um, and she's nice to him definitely in the scenes that they're dating. But I mean, she really doesn't do anything that's um, an expenditure of her labor, emotional labor as a woman. Uh, so no, and she's not manic at all. Like I said, like she's very, um, sad this entire movie. Um, that's how the actress plays it. But no, this is a movie about a villain. (laughs) This is from the villain's point of view. So yeah, that's Scott Pilgrim. Uh, I'm glad it's over with. I don't have to talk about it again. (laughs) You can just forget it ever happened. Okay. Well, this has been super fun.
1: Fuck Nathan Rabin and all women should reclaim the term of "Manny Pixie Dream Girl." If you're a quirky girl, and stop letting men.
0: You know what? Even if you're not a quirky girl, because even if you're like, you know what, I'm like a basic girl and I'm a boring girl. That's fine. Like, you know what? Sorry to take that TikTok sound, but it is okay to romanticize your life. It is okay you need to romanticize your life. <laughs> it is okay to find joy and pixiness. <laughs> and the, even <laughs> if you wouldn't consider yourself a dream girl, you are a dream girl. So, please reclaim this term and please use it to your heart's desire. Uh Nathan said sorry, but you know, um the only uh, the only way we're going to set it right is if we truly take it back. So, yeah. All right, praise (laughs) Elrond. All right, guys, thank you for listening. See you later. Bye. Bye, y'all.